Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Baltimore, law enforcement, and race. So, Richard, the news since the last time that we taped – uh, has been absolutely dominated by this situation in Baltimore where you had an African-American man, Freddie Gray, picked up by police. At some point while he's in custody, his spine is severed. He ends up dying from the injury, and as a result, we saw these riots and all kind of property destruction break out in the city last week. On Friday, the state's attorney, a woman named Marilyn Mosby, brought criminal charges against six of the officers involved, 28 charges, including a second-degree murder charge. She says that he was arrested improperly, that he wasn't secured properly in the police wagon, didn't receive medical attention in a prompt fashion. And some people are hailing her as a hero for this, and others are saying that this happened way too quickly, that she was kind of trying to play to the public, especially since her husband is a city councilman. Based on what we know right now, what's your reaction to the way that Mosby has handled this? Well, it's a kind of a mixed reaction. That is, when I first thought about this case, I said, let's compare this to the situation that you had in Ferguson, where by the time the dust had settled, it was quite clear that everything that Darren Wilson did was well within the bounds of justifiable homicide, so that the rioters were wrong on the facts, wrong on the law, and wrong on everything else. In this particular case, everybody understands that you can't teach poor Freddie Gray um, as some kind of an aggressor. The thing, incident happened when he was in police custody. What makes it so so tragic as there was nobody in the back of the van with him at the time he was put in there. Uh, it turns out that they shackled him both in the hands and in the legs and they let him freely romp around there, which is a sort of reckless indifference. The question is whether or not all of these things, including this and the medical care and the lack of inspection, it's no question that these are egregious procedures, that these policemen ought to be disciplined and disciplined severely from with it. There may well be criminal charges, but the reason why you take more time than Ms. Moses we did is you want to make sure that you've graded the offenses correctly. I mean, so the first thing that struck my eye is why is the driver being subject to a more severe charge than any of the other people who were with him in the van at that particular time? Um, did he have a different mental state? Was he trying consciously to actually move the van in a herky-jerky fashion so that the poor man would hit his head against the um, restraints or against the front walls? We don't know any of these questions. And since so much of this will depend upon mental state, uh, you really probably need to have a more, shall we say, exacting investigation to decide not only the question of whether somebody should be charged, but which charges should be made and why. And so it's that's the first problem. The second problem is, generally speaking, if you're a prosecutor, you're going to have to go into court. Uh, what you want to do is to announce your charges in low-key fashion. You don't want to try and essentially uh, pass yourself off as the conquering hero, uh, somebody who ought to be given adulation and praise. Whatever you get in the public arena is going to court, cost you very heavily in court because now, in effect, there'll be charges of inflammatory behavior, there'll be charges of prejudice, there'll be requests 
request that she remove herself. There'll be requests that the takes be taken out of Baltimore County and tried somewhere else. All of these things essentially will work for the defense and reduce the probability of a conviction. And as Alan Dershowitz said, and on this point, I think I agree with him, one of the really ugly prospects that you have is that these guys are overcharged on everything, convicted on nothing, and then we're going to face another race riot uh, that takes place because unfortunately in the United States today, enough public officials do not speak out and say no matter how egregious the situation in any particular incident, uh, having violent thugs take advantage of innocent people and wreck their homes, their lives, and their businesses is not to be tolerated and should be treated as a criminal offense and the justice of their cause is irrelevant to the situation given the means that they've used. It's not that these things haven't been said. The president certainly said it, and I I praise him for doing that, but they haven't been said emphatically enough and often enough so that essentially what happens is we find all sorts of reasons to believe a lot of these kinds of riots as the kind of thing which is a kind of a therapeutic situation that points to the deep weaknesses in American society. And I think that that's a dangerous trend that has to stop. Can you give the audience an overview of the sort of legal parameters around the police? I mean obviously police officers do a lot of things as a matter of course in their work that wouldn't be acceptable for a normal citizen. So legally, where are the lines drawn between giving the cops the flexibility that they need to do their work but also on the other hand keeping them from abusing their power in the line of duty? Well, it turns out that that's a question that people have asked for hundreds of years and they've never come up with a truly satisfactory <laughs> answer. So uh, when I give something which is going to sound wishy-washy and use such terms as unreasonable behavior um, or insufficient attention to detail, um, I expect to be criticized by an audience for being vague and evasive. But I think, in fact, the answer always is that when you're looking at these kinds of things, the first thing that you have to understand is that precision is not going to be part of this game. Precision Precisely for the reason you said. Police are authorized to arrest. They're authorized to use force to restrain people. They're authorized to overcome people who resist arrest and so forth. And so with them, the question is never or not you can use force, as it might be with an ordinary civilian. It's a question of whether or not they've used too much force. And let's just sort of go through this thing time and place after place. First of all, on the initial arrest, um, it seems pretty clear to me that this was an illegal arrest. In order to arrest somebody, at the very least, you have to have reasonable suspicion to stop them, maybe frisk them, and then if you find something, you could arrest them with probable cause. But if the only thing that somebody does is to turn tail when the police come, that's perfectly consistent with being frightened to death at the prospect of being arrested, it doesn't give anybody probable cause. So basically picking them up is seriously a mistake. Is it a criminal offense? I mean, if in fact these guys had some particular fear that he ran away because he had a suspect weapon or something like that, very hard to prove this on the mental state. I would be willing to say that the criminal uh, that, that the criminal charges would be iffy, but the disciplinary charges inside the police department should be there. Why is that? Because essentially when you have noncompliance with internal police directives, that's a ground for discipline, even if their violation may not be grounds for a criminal attack. Uh, criminal charges, which may depend upon some conscious awareness that you've gone beyond those particular guidelines or have done so for an illicit purpose. In this particular case, three of the officers charged are themselves black, like Freddie Gray, and so it's hard to think of this case as having a racial racial element in it, although for all I know that it might. And so if you don't have the racial element, what that tends to do is to lower the level of scrutiny that would otherwise be attached to the case. Then by leaving this guy uh, unattended in the van and, and shackling him up, 
Uh, the difficulty you have with the prosecution is, is this standard practice? And here you get one of these standard tensions. It may well be that under the rules of the book, you can't do all of this stuff, but the common practice in the forces to do it anyhow. Uh, for example, it is perfectly common when you have somebody in the back of a van, so I'm told, uh, to stop and make another arrest or another pickup so you have two people in at the same time. If, in fact, you knew that the guy was dying, this would be very, very serious. If you don't know he's dying, it becomes a much more complicated kind of case. It doesn't look in this particular circumstance that you can arrest them for violent driving, although maybe the record will show that. And it certainly doesn't look like there's any ex post cover-up of what the situation was, given that how quickly the information came out. Uh, so under these circumstances, the usual test is whether there's a knowing and unreasonable abuse of authority, which would be sufficient to sustain some criminal charge, leaving the severity of the deviation from standard norms to the way in which you grade the offense from very serious to non-serious. Second-degree murder is a pretty tough charge under these circumstances. It really requires, at the very least, some knowing awareness that you're about to kill somebody, which may not have been true in this particular case. I think they would have been better off with a manslaughter or an involuntary manslaughter charge against all of them. But I'm just speaking from a distance, and I think the Dershowitz points that you want to look before you leap and study it more closely and do it in relative calm is one that really takes on weight under circumstances where to an outsider, it looks as though overcharging may be a serious risk in this case. Let's talk for a moment about the political reaction to everything that happened in Baltimore because Hillary Clinton last week used these events as the backdrop for a big policy speech that she gave on criminal justice, trying to sort of put this in a broader context. And in those remarks, the big takeaway line was from her, it's time to end the era of mass incarceration. She blames that on a lot of African-American men being absent in neighborhoods like the ones in Baltimore. Uh, it's also something that a lot of your fellow libertarians say, Richard. So are you, are you sympathetic to that idea? Well, I mean the first point I would make is there's no connection between this issue um, of Freddie – Gray and the larger question of who should be incarcerated and why not. Uh, this is a case which would not result in incarceration. If the man had not been shamelessly, you know, terribly killed in this particular case, what would have happened is he would have been released after he'd been brought to the station because everybody would realize that there was no probable cause. And so what you're really worried about here is this very awkward transition between having somebody walk freely on the streets to somebody being incarcerated held on bail and whatever, all the pretrial stages. And that's just not what the thing that Hillary Clinton is talking about. On the question of mass incarceration, there's certainly some smoke there. And then the question is, what's the fire? If you look at American rates of incarceration generally, and for black males in particular, they're higher than they are pretty much anywhere in the world, more so for the black males than for anybody else. But before you start saying you have to end the age of mass incarceration, you have to ask at least two questions. One, is there any benefit from these incarcerations that you start to have? And secondly, what are the offenses for which they are held in jail? Um, if you start looking at American crime rates, what you'd have to say is they are still higher than they are anywhere else in the world, but crime rates and incarceration rates are actually down from what they were 20 years ago, particularly on the criminal rate. So the argument that incapacitation and incarceration may have produced a social benefit is one worth having. Then when you start looking at the nature of the offenses, uh, generally speaking, if you're talking about victimless offenses, assuming we know what these are, um, you 
don't want to put people into jail for much of that as you do for crimes that threaten violence or theft or rape or something of that sort, which means that you want to look very closely at the incarceration rates that are associated with drug use. Now, this is not to say that drug use is not a serious problem in the United States. And in fact, it can devastate many communities, lead to violent actions by people who either do stupid things when they're on them or commit crimes in order to get them. Now, Ms. Clinton talks about the fact that these people are removed from the community. Well, you don't know unless you know what they do in the community, whether or not this is a plus or a minus. If you're taking out a bunch of people who are thugs and threatening innocent citizens of their own race, getting them out of the community is a very good thing. If you're talking about loving and attentive fathers who are no longer able to give advice to their sons and daughters, it's a bad thing. I don't know what the particular mix is. But I think, in effect, it's just much too glib to come up with this type of an answer unless you are more granular in the way in which you look at the problem to isolate the given pieces out. And it's the worst thing in the world to make this a political issue because the technical stuff is so important to get right before you take a grandstand. And if you pre-commit yourself to the answer stop the mass incarceration, it's going to be impossible for you to weigh the evidence as it comes in to see where you're right and where you're wrong. And what's happened is it's not only Ms. Mosby who's politicized this, it's Mrs. Clinton who turns out to politicize this. And I frankly don't think she has any knowledge whatsoever as a criminologist. I don't claim to be one myself either, although I've certainly worked in the area and have taught criminal law from time to time. Uh, But what one wants to stress is that it's easy, generally speaking, in the law of crime to identify the things that you regard as criminal. What's really difficult is figuring out how to put together a system which isolates the people who commit those things, has responsible practices for trial and incarceration, management and release. It's the administration of the criminal justice system, which is the bear. It's not the standard first-year criminal law, of course, of trying to figure out what the various offenses are and how they relate to each other. So the final question that I'll ask you, starting with Ferguson, which amazingly is now almost nine months behind us, we have seen these issues come up over and over again of distrust between police and the African-American community. It seems like every few weeks or every month you get another case that touches this somehow and with each one it seems like the the tension inflames a little bit more so that it takes less and less to to start one of these scenarios. Mm. Keeping that in mind – Richard, going forward, what would, what would you say to, to, to each side, both to law enforcement and to maybe the leadership in the African-American community that gets involved with these protests? What, what, are, what is incumbent on both sides to ratchet down the tensions? Well, I mean the first problem on the police side is the organization. Uh, everywhere you look, there are peace benevolent associations, otherwise known as unions. And what these unions do is they exert an enormous power over the terms and conditions that can be imposed by way of police discipline. Uh, There is no doubt that in the public sector for the last 50 years, people have accepted the view that local governments are essentially oppressive and unless you have unions on the other side, uh, you're not going to get just results. Uh, You don't allow policemen to strike. You then force it through compulsory arbitration. Those tend to be highly pro-union and that means in effect that disciplines and dismissal and punishment inside the police force is very hard to come by and the unions will back back their members up to the hilt. And this, again, is quite independent of race, and it's true of teachers' unions, prison guard unions, and everything else. I've always agreed with Calvin Coolidge, which is that essentially it is never permissible for anybody to strike against the public at any 
time or in any place. And if, in fact, you're not going to allow people to strike, you don't want them to organize. If you think there are civil service protections that ought to be given, you put them into the basic contracts. What you really want to do is to create competition between different districts so as to get the best police force and the best mix of rules. But so long as you have this particular powerful element there, it's going to be extremely resistant to labor reforms that might do things on the government side. And you look at a state like Maryland, which is solid blue, although they now, thank heavens, have a Republican governor, this guy Hogan, I guess. Um, I think, in effect, you have to change on that. Uh, in terms of the public inputs on this, I think, in effect, what has to happen is two things. One, with respect to the um, guilt and innocence stuff, what is so striking about the situation is, you know, you take two cases, Trayvon Martin and the situation with Michael Brown. And in both of those cases, there's pretty strong evidence that these two guys were up to no good deeds, that Zimmerman was about to be killed, that Oren Darren Wilson was about to be killed. And somehow or other, what happens is you go through the trial in the one case and an exhaustive Department of Justice evaluation in the other case, and nobody changes their opinions. The black opinion leaders, in my view, are under a duty uh, to go out and to say, you know, guys, we made a mistake. We really have to watch all this stuff. If it turns out that there's a black person assaulting a white person, uh, that's a criminal offense just the way it's a white person who's assaulting a black peace officer. We have to take race out of this thing and try to look at these cases on the merits. And the second thing I think what we have to do is to get rid of the psychological frame of mind, which says that you never blame anybody for any criminal offense. What you do is you now start looking at the world at large and say, you know, we need more programs for redistribution of one kind or other, all of which are the programs that have failed in cities like Baltimore and Detroit, which have seen their population and tax bases devastated by progressive reform. And I think, in effect, that, you know, going back to what Daniel Moynihan said, even going back to what Booker T. Washington said is important, the way in which reform begins in these communities is not with external contributions, but with the reassertion of the traditional values that really matter, the ones of integrity, the ones of loyalty, the ones of deep commitment to family and so forth, are the ones to education. And now how do you do that? Well, I think you have to have a moral leadership on the one hand, but strangely enough, the other thing you have to do is to give people hope. Hope, to my mind, translates into giving you, by and large, uh, day-to-day security, and most importantly, a decent education system, crime-free for your children. And that means, in some sense, you have to get rid of the public school model dominated by unions and shift very much over to charter schools and private schools of one sort or another. And, of course, the very people who are most committed to civil rights are the ones who are most adamant in making sure that these reforms will never happen. Uh, So what I would say to the black community, and I think it understands these things in places like New York, you have to figure out where your loyalties are. Are they to your children or are they to union support? And I think what has to happen is these people have to come together as a group and to say, we want to have choice in education. We think we can reduce the cost of public education and improve it if we decentralize the system. And they have to be explicit in their break from their unions. If they don't do that, then people like the president will talk civil rights in the abstract, but will try to zero out every budget in D.C. or anywhere else, which will create more competitive conditions in these educational markets. And that's one of the real things that draws down Baltimore. It's not for the lack of money, because so much of that money comes from the state and from the federal government. It's a lack of sound institutions, and those institutions have to be changed and changed now.
All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.